Hello and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about the classical world, education, and much, much more. My name is Thomas Magby and I'm joined as always by Mr. AJ Hannenberg. That's this guy right here. And Mr. Graham Donaldson. Hello. Now, I, th- I think we made the joke about sequels last time. I'm trying to think of like, what, what things are there that have six parts and are incredible? So, so, uh, nothing. No, okay, great. Well, just mean, like this pot. No, just kidding. So, uh, episode six is new. Ho- no, four, no, that's episode four. Which one's episode six? Is that of Star Wars? Is that Return of the Jedi? Is that? Yeah, it's yeah. the third. It's a good one. Yeah, like Return of the Jedi. So this is, yeah, we're in, we're in good company with this. Right. Speaking of part six, today will be part six of the Plantagenet series, led by Mr. Graham Donaldson. Yes. So, if you have been a listener to this series, um, congratulations for making it to part six. So, where part five ended was the death of the Black Prince. So, the the best knight in all of Christendom. From like dysentery, right? Uh, he died of dysentery in uh, Spain or whatever, and it cast this sort of um, sadness over over England. So Richard III was getting up in years. Sorry, Edward III was getting up in years. And with the death of the Black Prince, you, we had a pretty, we had a not insignificant succession problem. Because if you're going with primogenitor, which most kings did back then, um, there was an argument to be made for the Black Prince's son to be king, and his name was Richard. So he would be Richard II. But then there was also an argument to be made for Edward III's brother to be king as well, because um, um, that made sense too, and that brother would be John of Gaunt. Um, and what to add another element to this, Richard II, so when Edward III eventually dies, Richard II is only nine years old, and John of Gaunt is a great man. Like a, he is just an absolute organizer of men, a leader of armies, somebody that people respect. Um, He's the Duke of Lancaster. He owns all of this land in Lancaster. He is by all respects a great man. So you would be passing on the kingdom from a great man to a great man. This seems like a no, this seems like a good idea. Right. But technically it should go to Richard because he is the grandson of the king. So he would have been the next king's son and the next king died early. So he's going to be the king. So there's this succession problem. Um, uh, So let's just back up a little bit before the black prince dies. His son who becomes King Richard II is born uh, while uh, the black prince is on a campaign and he's on a campaign in Spain and he was born on January 6th. 1367. So Richard II is born on, on January 6th, which is the 12th night of Christmas. So the 12th night is sort of this auspicious night to be born under. And his, um, his baptism was attended by three kings, hmm. which also has a significance to it, almost like the three magi. Right. Um, Whoa. Yes. Yeah, so his That's baptism cool. atta- is attended by King Pedro. Uh, King James... <laughs> Wait, yeah. is this Pedro the Cruel? Pedro the Cruel, unfortunately. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of a weird one. Yeah. To yeah. King Pedro, King James the Fourth of Majorca, and King Richard of Armenia. So, I mean, like, not necessarily like, you know... Uh, let's just say those aren't rare kings on your king trading cards. Okay. Um, the rare cards on your tra- your medieval, medieval king trading card deck. They're no Richard the Lionheart, yes, is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. Well, King Pedro the Cruel, I feel like he'd be a collector's item. Yeah, that's... A, I mean, that's... Just because of the you name. You gotta earn just that because name. because of the name, yeah. 
Anyway, so he's born on the twelfth night, and his baptism attended by three kings. So already people are sort of whispering, like, "Oh, there's something going on with this boy. Maybe he's got a future." Um, and then, yeah, and then his father dies of dysentery, and then Edward the Third is when he's an old man. His wife, his beloved wife Philippa, has died. He has this lover that's kind of kept him company, but. He probably shouldn't have had this lover. She's sort of just in it for the money, but mm-hmm. he wants a companionship, and he's this old man, and she's this young, beautiful thing, and everyone's kind of real uncomfortable about it. Yeah. But anyway, he's a king, so... And he is reduced to a gibbering old man through a series of strokes. Oh. So the great Edward III, this lover of chivalry and a knighthood uh, who fought in tournaments under the king, under the name of, um, of uh, you know, Sir Lionel, like he is this now this gibbering old man uh, who dies from... who, who has strokes. He eventually dies, and the scene is one that is very sad. Apparently, his beloved uh, was in the room. The only two people in the room were his his you know mistress and um, and the, the the guy giving the last rites. And the story is is that as the priest is giving the last rites over the, over Edward III's body, the mistress um, takes all the rings off of his oh. fingers and runs away, <laughs> and takes all the rings and she's like, "I'm rich," and then goes <laughs> off and um, and sort of you know uh, lives her lives her gold digging life or whatever. I wonder if she realized that a few rings aren't really going to... Hey, there's gold. I mean... Well, anyway. I guess if the jewels are big enough. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of sad. So this is, that's in 1377 when Edward III dies. And so there's this huge lavish funeral for the king. Um, but all of his taxations and all of his wars with France have taken their toll, not to mention the fact that the Black Plague happened during his reign. And so there's this huge shortage of dudes in the country, and that's having economic impact. And so uh, he dies under the fact, uh, when he dies, the, the country's sort of exhausted. Let's put it that way. The country has been exhausted financially um, in terms of troops, and there's rumblings that um, that there's going to be, you know, some, some throwdowns. In fact, John of Gaunt, just through his sheer magnanimity and willpower and diplomacy, keeps the country from kind of disem- just sort of devolving into, into petty chaos. He just sort of pulls everything together. And the big question is, who's king? Legally, it's Richard II. Right. Seems pretty clear. Practically, it would yeah. be a lot better if John, the Gaunt, John of Gaunt was king. Everybody says, no, it should be... Please well, tell me John of Gaunt was skinny. Please. <laughs> I'm not That's sure. That's all that I want to know. Um, is, was he skinny? Was no he idea. actually Gaunt? Uh, I have no idea. Is that why where we get Gaunt from? I don't think so. Gaunt is a place. Gaunt is a place. These are the questions that I have. Was questions. everyone in yeah. Gaunt skinny? Was it mm-hmm. just like a place uh, where they ran a lot? Or? Yeah, it's, you know, they ate a lot of fish. <laughs> was it, and, yeah, it was just like fish and vegetables yeah. and no no grains? Is yeah. that kind of thing? They and, were all on the very serious. Long faces. Yes. Anyway, so... They agreed that Richard should be king. I mean, he is he is the king, and so they have this coronation, um, and he is 10 years old. And it's a lavish coronation. He comes in, and they uh, he's wearing a robe of gold, and then they do what they do at all coronations, where they strip you to the waist, and they anoint your arm and your beard, although a 10-year-old didn't have a beard. They anoint your arm and your head with oil, and you sit on the throne with the crown, with the royal scepter, and you are exclaimed to be God's regent on earth. 
It was very lavish, very beautiful. And uh, uh, Edward II's beloved tutor, so he had this tutor that taught him his whole life that um, his beloved tutor carried Edward out, the new king, on his shoulders out of the church. Uh, and it was a very jolly, happy time. And it was so, everyone was sort of like singing and dancing when Richard II was coronated, uh, that Richard II lost one of his shoes um, being carried out uh, by his beloved tutor. And everyone's clapping and dancing. And this young boy king is now king. Sounds great. Yeah, it's great. Um, but then it's like, okay, well, we can't have a 10-year-old like actually pulling the strings. Right. We need some sort of regent. And who's the obvious choice? The other guy. John of Gaunt, of course. Right. John of Gaunt is the obvious choice. But he has a, signif- a, a considerable amount of power in land. He is the Duke of Lancaster, the biggest uh, dukedom in, in the kingdom. And there's some sort of rumblings from other people that just don't like him politically and also are a little concerned that he may do... Uh, uh, a crown power grab. He doesn't, to his credit, but everyone kind of assumes that he does. Another basis of their suspicion was that he had a protege, uh, and his protege's name was John Wycliffe. Hmm. Do you guys know who John Wycliffe was? Started the Bible college, right? <laughs> kind of. No, he was a what we would probably what we have now referred to as a pre. Um, uh, Protestant, I don't mm-hmm. know if you want to call it that. Uh, uh, um, he was He's a borderline heresy. He was somebody that was beginning to really question the establishment of the of the of hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Um, and so he's coming in, uh, and then on top of this, you have um, another sect of Catholicism called the Lollards, and the Lollards were another group that really questioned the um, the Roman aspect of Roman Catholicism. Uh, they didn't really like the idea of the Pope in Rome. Uh, they wanted maybe to have free investiture as opposed to papal investiture. All that means is you can choose your bishops as opposed to the, the Pope can choose your bishops. Um, so anyway, John Wycliffe was John of Gaunt's protege, and people are like, uh, he kind of hangs out with guys that have sketchy, questionable views. Maybe we don't really want him to be the regent what if he seizes power? He's got the troops to be king if he wanted to. So they all came to a um, they all came to a conclusion, and they decided to have a rotating band of twelve men be the regency. Hmm. So there was a charter. How could this go wrong? No, yeah, actually, it ends up actually goes pretty well. Really? Um, they don't yeah, fight or anything. No, they don't fight. Huh. They have this charter of twelve men that kind of um, take that rule the kingdom until the the king is old enough. Um, the decks also kind of stacked against the kingdom because uh, there's just, uh, there, like I said, the realm was exhausted in terms of men, in terms of money, and in terms of resources just from all the wars and the Black Death. You really have immense strain on the civic order. So because of this immense strain, there was a lot of, there was some sort of realizations that we should put political differences aside and, and make sure that, like, the whole house of cards doesn't come down. So these 12 men actually did work well together, um, but they all could agree that they didn't really want John of Gaunt in power. But my reading of it is that John of Gaunt would have been a fine regent because he didn't seem to have an angling for power. He was a serv- he was a servant to the crown when it was his brother, and he was a servant to Richard II. He was a pretty all-around great guy. Um, okay, in 1381, when the king is about 14 years old, there is the first big, open rebellion against regal authority in Europe. 
Uh, these things pop up all the time, and the most famous one, of course, being the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Is this the Peasants' Rebellion? Yes, is what they this call is it? a Peasants' Revolt. This is where uh, we talked about this in the Chaucer episode. Yes. He had mm-hmm. a bunch of buddies die in this, in this whole yes. revolt. Yes, so the Peasants' Revolt was not just uh, a, a small thing. These... Uh, um, the king's uh, tax collectors went out, so we're, you know it's Chaucer's job. The king's tax collectors went out, and one day peasants just killed them. They killed the tax collectors, and it kind of was like the spark that uh, created the inferno. Mm. Um, uh, the rebels realized that they, you know, that, that um, all of these sort of uh, yeah these sentiments boiled over, and they actually organized and they created this peasants' army of over like tens of thousands of armed angry peasants. Um, and they had two leaders. They had a guy named Watt. This is first name W A T. Watt Tyler. And they had who? a. Tell his name is who or huh? Because I feel like we got <laughs> what? A, who's on first situation. Brew no, here. Watt Tyler and John Ball. And John oh, Ball was God, a. Almost. That's pretty good. That's pretty John good. <laughs> Ball was a rebellious cleric, so he was a, he was definitely a lawlord, which means he didn't he doesn't like the Pope very much, and he was considered a heretic. So you have this like rogue cleric, this like rogue bishop who's not really a bishop, but he calls himself one. And then you have Watt Tyler, who's this, the, the, the man of the people. He's this freedom fighter revolutionary. And he always claimed that he was doing this in loyalty and service to the crown against the king's enemies, the nobles. So the nobles are jerks, um, but the king is not. The king's mm. one of us for whatever reason. Um, he was a poet, Watt Tyler, and uh, he, had a, he wrote these little uh, catchy limericks that people memorized to help them in their revolutionary fervor. Uh, one, the most famous one was Against Gentlemen, was Against Nobility. His uh, little poem was When Adam Delved and Eve Span, Who Was Then the Gentleman? Um, so it's like back when God created humanity, Adam and Eve, they did their jobs. They didn't need no nobility. Um, and so it was, this, yeah, it was very much a, a rebellion of egalitarian. I'm going to read you their demands a little bit later. It sounds like Marx. Anyway, we'll get there. Really? Yeah, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had, this, they had this open rebellion, and they had this army, and they come, and they plant their army just outside of London. And, um, um, yeah, actually, they, uh, uh, so they had, it, it was this weird mix of a high regard for the majesty of the crown but a total disregard for the nobility. Hmm. Um, so they came to the king and they had a list of demands. And the demands were basically they wanted to create a classless society under the monarch. So the king was going to be king over all, but they didn't want nobility. They didn't want gentry. They wanted this classless society. And they wanted all goods to be held in common, which is, you know, that's more of a 19th and 20th century thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so they come and they have these demands, and it really got out of hand. Um, so you have tens of thousands of, of rebels um, sitting outside of London. And the 14-year-old boy king is in the Tower of London looking at what's essentially an army of peasants. And he goes to his, um, uh, his, 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 his uh, advisors, and he's like, what should I do? And some advisors say, you got to parlay with them. And other advisors say, like, no, you don't got to parlay with these guys. These guys are your subjects. Just command them to go home. King doesn't really know what to do. He refuses to parlay with Watt Tyler. All Watt Tyler wanted was to talk to the king, give the demands, and have the king, like, agree to them. Watt Tyler was believed that the king would see reason and, like, 
disband nobility and it would be king and people and sort nope. of happy in happy, uh, you know, socialist. I feel like uh, the nobles wouldn't feel utopia too good about that. No. Yeah, nobles were definitely not happy about that. And they got lots of money in armies. And so that's right. So the peasants burned down the town of Southwark, kind of where they were camping. And um, they eventually came to the London Bridge. Wait, they burned down the one where they were camping? Seems like a bad idea. I th- you think they'd well, like from take there. a walk and find a different place? Well, yeah. they they were sort of around this town. They burned it down and they looted it, and then they actually oh, okay. went to London Bridge and got them to lower the drawbridge, and they sacked London. What? Wow! London? So, yes, they sacked London. In fact, they they went to all of they went to the fanciest streets in London, the nobles' houses. And they plundered all of their goods, and they actually planted uh, gunpowder under John of Gaunt's uh, house and blew it up. Wow. They blew up John of Gaunt's house. Oh, that probably like didn't go over well with yeah, the nobles. Yeah, so John of Gaunt wasn't very happy. It did not go over well with the nobles, but they, but the nobles were kind of taken by surprise at the ferocity of these peasants, and the peasants actually captured a lot of nobles and had these sort of kangaroo courts in the street. And beheaded them. Oh my God! There was, so it was like a pre-French right. Revolution. It was French like revolution. Yeah, when, I, when I said this was and the first, there was no guillotine, so it was not a fun. Yes. Situation. So when this was the first, uh, uh, you know, uh, revolutionary action that would echo throughout, you know, the next hundreds of years in Europe, like this is true. They were beheading nobles in the streets, and this boy king is in the Tower of London presumably looking at his home of London burning and blood in the cobblestones and, you know, just 30 years ago, his grandfather, Richard, or Edward III, you know, it was this time of like milk and honey and songs and dancing and, you know, and, and fun times. And now it's, and now it's bloodshed. So, um, so the, to his credit, Richard II said, I am going to put a stop to this. And so he rode out with his nobles to meet this band, this army of tens of thousands of peasants outside of London. Because when they sacked it, they went outside and they're like, all right, now what are you going to do? So the 14-year-old boy king dons his armor, goes out to parley with Watt Tyler. Um, and um, uh, he rides out to meet them. But his nobles kind of – so he, he rides out in good faith to go and meet, meet him, but his nobles uh, who were also in the tower with him – so, yeah, Richard II, sorry, Richard II knew that he wasn't going to be killed by the, by the, the peasants. The peasants seemed to like him. Um, but the nobles were like, we're, we are skunked. If these, if this, these peasants find us, they're going to behead us. So they used Richard going out as like smokescreen to try to escape the tower. Hmm. And as they were fleeing, Ooh. this little old lady saw them leaving and she was like, Rah! and then she went and told um, the uh, uh, Watt Tyler and he sent his tr- troops and they got him and they got all when of When he these- heard it, did he, did he go, what? <laughs> and so they captured <laughs> these sorry, nobles. I've been looking for an opportunity. They captured these nobles and they killed them. Mm. They killed the, um, uh, the Duke of Canterbury. I think. Oh, no, maybe the Duke of Canterbury dies later. Anyway, they kill these nobles, men that had served his grandfather and also were friends with his father, the Black Prince. Uh, these peasants uh, ended up beheading them, putting their heads on pikes, the whole, the whole deal. Um, and there was one young nobleman. His name was Henry Bolingbroke. And Henry Bolingbroke was the John of Gaunt's son. And he was in the Tower of London, so he's the cousin to the king. So he's 15, 16, or whatever. And the only way that he survived was one of his knights, when he realized that 
these peasants were coming up the tower, hid him in a cupboard. Hmm. And he hid in this cupboard, quiet as a mouse, while all of the people around were being slaughtered and killed and putting their heads on pikes. And he sat very quietly in this cupboard, hidden. This is going to be very important because Henry Bolingbroke is a very important player in this story. And history would have gone very differently if they had found him in that cupboard. Anyway, so he hides in this cupboard and waits and then escapes with his life, John of Gaunt's son. So there's absolutely just chaos in London. Right. Um, this is. But I forget, a, is John of Gaunt dead at this point? John of Gaunt is not dead. Okay. No. But his house got blown up. Well, I knew something <laughs> happened to him. I knew that I knew that the house was gone, but. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the, actually, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the very man who coronated Richard II when he was 10 years old, gets beheaded in this, in this raid. So, um, and so. Now the king comes to parley and they have all these dead nobles with their heads on pikes. And Watt Tyler's like, my Lord, I did this for you, the king. I have destroyed all of these negative influences. We can now have our classless society with you as our head. Yeah, no. And uh, Richard II's like, you know, he's 14 years old. He's like, yay, thanks, subjects, for doing this. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, looking at the head of the man who coronated him in, in you know, mm. in Canterbury. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it is a sort of awkward meeting. And so then here was the list of demands that Watt Tyler and his merry band uh, sent to them. So see, I can uh, read part of it here. Um, so here's a list of demands. The king asked him what were the points he wished to have considered. And he should have them freely and without contradictions, written out and sealed. Thereupon he said, Watt rehearsed the points which were to be demanded. And he asked that there should be no law but the law of Winchester. And this is um, a demand for a return to central policing as it had operated under Edward I rather than by the local gentry uh, as under Edward III. It was basically like an organization of, of the police force. So that um, I, I apparently – did you have like police abuses or something? Yeah. And so, uh, and so the policeman sort of like a noble could tell his police force like you're going to abuse this ex- certain people and exactly. do these laws. And so each was a law unto themselves. Yeah. So of. the peasants were not happy with the sort of decentralized – uh, police force. Got it. And, and that there should be henceforth no out uh, outlawry in any process of law, and that no lord should have any lordship, but that it should be divided between all men, i.e., that all social and legal hierarchy should be abolished, and except for the king's own lordship. So, no more nobles. Um, he also asked that the goods of the holy church should not remain in the hands of the religious, nor of parsons and vicars and other churchmen, but that the clergy should have a sufficient sustenance and the rest of their goods should be divided among the parishioners. And he demanded that there should be only one bishop in England, and he demanded that there should be no more bondmen in England, no serfdom or villainage, but that all should be free and of one condition. So, they want no more rich church people, they only want one bishop, and they don't want to be uh, having any kind of legal sure. bond contracts to yep. noblemen. They want to be free. Those um, are horrible demands. Those are huge demands. Like, they're, they're enormous, but I see where he's going with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely sympathetic. Definitely sympathetic. But these are enormous demands. The king doesn't really have any... Um, the king asks... Um, about the the regality of the crown, and then Watt Tyler and his men are like, "Well, you are king. You will, you are ordained and anointed by God. We can't take that away." And Richard II's like, "Heck yeah, you can't." Um, and um, so then, I agree. I agree. I suppose yeah. you're right. Mm-hmm. So I the king sort of uh, makes movements to the fact that he is going to sign. And in fact, he actually does sign and agrees to the demands 
because he wants this army to not slaughter everybody. And then Richard says, I've agreed to your demands. I want you to go home. What then? Watt Tyler was real proud of himself, real happy with this, and he realized he just could push around a king, and he's like, this is awesome. The story goes that he turned out he was a little bit thirsty, and so he asked his man for a drink of water. Uh, he drank it, swirled it around in his mouth, spat it on the ground. Some of it hit the king's feet. Ooh. Either by mistake or on purpose, we don't really know. And one of the king's um, uh, guards who were standing there, filled with righteous indignation, or perhaps saw an opportunity... Uh, pulled out his knife and plunged it into Watt Tyler's side. No way. Yeah. No, like after the king right has there, agreed. Right there, after the king has agreed and he's like, he spits it on the ground and this guy's like, oh no, you didn't. He disrespects and stab, the king. Disrespects yep. the king and yep. stabs Watt Tyler. No Mortally way. wounding him. Wow. Watt Tyler. I mean, how's the king going to react yes. to this guy that just <laughs> outs like, I feel like that's a huge mm. step from a this, bodyguard. Yes. Yeah. This prompted a huge like bro off between Watt Tyler's men and the king's men. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, we're going to throw down now. This is what's going to happen. And uh, like Watt, Tyler, teams coming, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Watt Tyler goes back bleeding out of his side, screaming treachery to his oh. tens of thousands of troops. Wow. Oh, that's bad. And then dies on the field of battle. That's bad. Oh, that's really bad. And Not s- only do you have treachery, you have a martyrdom after yes, the king is agreed. martyrdom. Oh. So you have bad. a signed contract and then a dead a dead martyr of the people. And it's he can never come out and say, like, I agree to the demands previous. Mm-hmm. Like, that's never going to fly. So, um, the peasants lose their dang minds. Yeah, of course. And yeah. they line up for battle, and then they began lobbing arrows at the king's very limited army. And it looks like... Lobbing? Was, Did they not have bows? Or, you know, they you know, just, like, chucking them over the wall? No, no. They were, you know, lobbing <laughs> them with their... There was no Take wall. This. They were, so <laughs> they were out in this field. <gasps> and it. so the 14-year-old king sees that this is getting out of hand. And he stops his army, he spurs his horse, and he rides out in between the two armies. And he commands the people, the, 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 he commands the, the peasants to put down their arms. He says, I have signed the contract. I am your king anointed by God. I lead you and I command you to go home. Mm. By himself, sort of, you know, with no knights around him, this boy on a horse in armor in front of an army of tens of thousands, and the story goes that the whole army was cowed by his majesty. Wow. They dropped their arms and they kneeled before him. So it worked. No. Wow. Yeah. What? So why that. is there not a movie about so this? So Richard yeah. II is standing there in the middle and all of this, this army of 10,000 peasants are bowing towards him. And this kind of gave his, his the king's army some time. And then uh, the king's army sort of eventually came in in numbers and because Watt Tyler was dead and there was confusion in the peasants, they decided that, hey, the king signed the contract. We kind of got what we wanted. We're going to go home. So they leave. They, they sort of drop their arms and they go home, assuming that the king who had signed the contract was going to, you know, abide by it. Um, so, yeah, they were overwhelmed. The nobles will be pretty chill about being yeah, put on the same level exactly. with everybody else. Like, so the peasants, they were overwhelmed by his majesty and right. they returned home. This did two things to Rich, young Richard. One absolutely traumatized him right. being in the tower seeing the peasants revolting and killing all the people that were your boyhood you know mentors right. had an effect on him he never really trusted the people and also really never trusted nobles so that he was a pretty he did not try he could see how things could go south real quick secondly he had a what probably ended up being an overinflated sense of his own majesty as far as he was concerned, all problems could be solved by appealing to his kingship. By appearing on a horse yes. and telling everyone to go home? 
Now, this may work with some peasants right. who really believed him, but when it came to his political e- uh, rivals, not, not so very, much. Right. Anyway, so it's this scarred him for life. And then uh, when the whole thing settled down and uh, the dead nobles got their lands passed to their kids or reappropriated or whatever, um, uh, um, King Richard announced that every peasant in the Peasants' Revolt were traitors, and he publicly ripped up the charter and was like, I ain't doing this, and ripped it in front of them, and he had these choice words and called them all villains and all these kinds of things. And the peasants were like, oh, crap, that kind of sucks. So is there another revolt after that? Nope. Okay. Because there's not. no there's no Mr. Watt. Yeah, no Mr. Watt, and there it's just they sort of shot their wad, and it didn't really work. Um. So. Um. Anyway, so he's a 14 year old king, and he's just stopped a giant bloody rebellion from getting even bloodier. Uh, what do you do? He got married. Oh. So as a 14 year old, he got married to secure his power base, and he married Anne of Bohemia. Does anybody know who Anne of Bohemia's father was? No. David of Bohemia? Good King Wenceslas looked no down on cool. the feast of Stephen. That's right. King Wenceslas IV. He married hmm. his daughter, Anne of Bohemia, and one chronicler said that she was, quote, a little scrap of humanity. <laughs> okay. I don't know what that means. It just means that she, she was apparently very shy and very quiet and uh, very sort of Tiny. Uh, little, a little waif of a thing. And Richard II himself was a little waif of a thing. He was a little boy. He wasn't. He didn't really have the height of some of his ancestors. He was blonde, but he was sort of thin. Um, and he was soft-spoken, but he had a temper. But he was kind of – him and his wife were these little waifs. They were these, these little, like, little little reeds. Little in, graham crackers. Yeah. Little, <laughs> like a – Yeah. Anyway, like little, so yeah. him and his little waif of a wife um, uh, got married. And apparently he loved her. I wonder if you ever had a Freudian slip, like, good morning, wife. I mean, wife. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wife. I meant wife. (laughs) And he loved her and, um, uh, you know, doted on her. And it was a pretty happy marriage. Um, There was other political reasons why he married her. There was the the schism where there was two popes were happening at this time. There was a pope in Avignon in France. There was a French pope and an Italian pope. And it was this whole thing. And I don't know too much about it. Um, But there was some sort of political reason why he married also uh, Anne of Bohemia. Anyway, so yeah, he was he was shy, he was blonde, he was slight, but he had a temper. Um, and his temper would uh, cause him to do things that were not very kingly. Every, once in a while, uh, one noble, uh, I think it was actually the, the new Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, kind of chastised him for something, and he actually attacked him with his sword and like smacked him with it. And this isn't a very kingly thing to do. You don't no. smack the Archbishop of Canterbury with a sword. But this sort of showed Richard II was, he had a very inflated view of his majesty. That um, One of his uh, favorite phrases was, the king shall do as he chooses. <laughs> so that's kind of um, a problem. Um, he was accused of mismanaging the, the finances of the kingdom. Mm, that's bad. And it kind of goes back and forth between either he did mismanage it, mismanage it he loved art, he loved finery, he loved uh, um, uh, lavish ceremonies, um, jewels, and also because in his mind it was security. If you puff up the kingdom, the kinghood, um, that majesty, you can use it to get people to, uh, you know, do what you want them to do because it works so well with the peasants. He sort of saw it as like insurance, but his nobles saw it as waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like how, so there was always rumblings of um, that he shouldn't be king. You will remember that Edward 
the third was able to take over large portions of France because there was a weak king in France. Well, there was a huge fear that the French would be able to take back their lands because there was a weak king in England. Um, the French loved to, at this point, make fun of, of their little king, and they would say things like, oh, we sure are glad that the Duke of Lancaster, John of Gaunt, isn't king, because if he was, we wouldn't be able to do this, and then mm. they would, like, launch an attack or whatever. So um, there was just these rumblings that there's a whole wing of people that thought the crown should be passed to John of Gaunt. John of Gaunt never thought this. But there was just this sort of like sentiment that we have this guy who, yeah, he's supposed to be the king, but we're in a real dangerous situation. Oh, and look, he's spending all of our money and he's like 15. We're being ruled by a 10th grader. Um, you know, so these noblemen whose very livelihoods were based on his decisions, Richard II's decisions, they were kind of nervous and probably rightly so. Um so at one point, they turned to the political actions that they had, which was parliament. And they demanded that King uh, Richard II came to parliament to um, sort of get the house in order. And being a 15-year-old boy, apparently he didn't want to sit in parliament all day. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, and he said he was not going to go to parliament. And they said, if you don't come and open parliament, we can legally dissolve parliament after 40 days. And then we're going to have chaos and anarchy. Well, we don't want chaos and anarchy. So he came to Parliament, and they were able. It was called the it was called the Wonderful Parliament, and they were they in they were able to pass a bunch of reforming laws that essentially stripped all of the power, like all of the actual decision making power from the king. He was still king, but they put all of the power in the hands of the nobles, and it was basically like a "What are you going to do about it? You're a king. You can attack us, but then we're going to have bloody civil war." And we have more power and dudes than you, and we're older, right. and a we've been our, in war. A lot of your armies come from us anyway, That's and so right. if you try to go against us, where are you going to get the armies? Yeah. You're a child, and we have fought wars with your father and your grandfather. What are you going to do? And so he reluctantly—and they also said, you know, things have happened to weak kings in the past, like Edward II, remember? Mm. And we deposed—Edward II was deposed by nobles before. There's precedent, buddy. And Richard II— seethed with anger right but accepted so by like 19 or 20 he is now effectively sort of stripped of all of Just his actual head. power yeah. yeah so he is furious and he leaves brooding and he goes on a tour of the realm with his buddies so he had this court of dudes that uh, he kept with him and they were his contemporaries so they were also 15 years old and he only trusted them because you know they were his buddies they were his friends and these noblemen were not they were his dad's friends right and uh, they just stripped him of power um and while he was got, uh, out in the realm again this kind of rubbed the nobles in the wrong way and and just um Little militia bands started to form. Little armies started to pop up here and there. Every now and then, people would say, our king sucks. We should have somebody strong. Maybe we don't even need a king. We should be our own leaders. This peasant's revolt really started to, like, stoke some fires of, maybe there are different ways to do this. Um, eventually, um, five men got together, and they, they, they got all of their armies together, and then they said that they were going to, that they were, going to force the king to be a better king we're doing this for you is what they said we you are the king we want you to rule well so we are going to encourage you to rule well by 
kind of turning the screws on you by organizing our army, right? It's You can't come out and treasonously say, we want the crown. You have to come out and say, we're trying to save the crown from the king. It's kind of this weird argument. So there are these men, and these are, in, these are important men. There were three older men, the Duke of Gloucester, the Duke of Warwick, and the, Deuce, the Duke of Arundel. And there was two younger men, Henry Bolingbroke, who's also known as the Duke of Derby, but we'll just call him Henry Bolingbroke. And he was John of Gaunt's son, the cousin to the king. Cupboard kid. Cupboard kid. Mm. And then there was Thomas Mowbray. And Thomas Mowbray was also a young man. So these five men got all of their armies together. John of Gaunt's an old man by this point. So Henry Bolingbroke's essentially in charge of Lancaster. Um, And they got all their armies together and they um, basically said, King all of those attendants you have around you are snakes and they are whispering sweet nothings in your ear and they are turning the kingdom uh, 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 awry and we want you to come back under our influence and get rid of your, uh, your friend's influence. Now, what happens when a bunch of adults come to a 15-year-old boy and say, hey, all of your friends aren't really your friends? Uh, how does that boy usually respond to that uh, accusation? I don't normally tell people that they're unloved by their peers, but I, I would assume poorly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. The, that, the, if to say your friends aren't really your friends, uh, 15-year-old, I can see he's more like 19-year-old king, was like, you have no idea what you're talking about. And his buddies were like, king, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to separate us. They're, right. they're coming for your crown. We got to get rid of this. We got to get rid of them. And it eventually turned into a battle. There, mm. there was a, a time. So one of the king's closest advisors um, uh, who is this, you know, 20-year-old guy, got his army together, and he went after and he went after these five guys uh, and their armies, and there was this battle where the uh, Henry Bolingbroke and the Duke of Gloucester ended up surrounding this guy's army, and he was either going to have to, f- he was concerned because he was like, if I get captured, they are going to behead me as a traitor to the king, that I'm whispering treasonous things to the king. So he, much to his perhaps embarrassment, um, uh, took off all of his armor and jumped into the Thames and fled, uh, abandoning his army, and his army surrender- immediately surrendered. They're like, all right, well, we're not fighting. Um, they immediately surrendered, and this was basically like the, the defeat for the king. Richard II had no army anymore. His buddy he put in charge of it fled to France. I kind of like Wait, he, he fled like didn't just flee. He did. He left. He fled. He went to France. I like, kind of feel like when he jumped into the Thames, he just like swam all the way to France. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so his story ends with him in France being like, oh, well, I didn't die. Um, but he basically like say la vie. Yeah, and then he screwed over. He screwed over his buddy. He screwed over Richard II. And Richard II now had no general. Oh, um, that stinks. So fine. The king called a second parliament. And unfortunately, this parliament was called the merciless parliament because um, they did, they, these five men, Gloucester, Warwick, Arundel, Bolingbroke, and Mowbray um, basically did a giant purge of the King's inner circle and beheaded them, killed them. Oh, wow. They did, oh, did, so you're yes. not talking about like political purge. No, no, no. You mean I mean, like actually murders, they yeah. were traitors purge and they, they ended up killing them, including the beloved tutor, the one that carried uh, King the kid on his shoulders. No. Yeah, they ended up killing him. Wow, and of, and kind of this one was just sort of kind of cruelty. He didn't really have a political thing. They just knew that he was the king's favorite, and the king couldn't do anything about the others. And he kind of agreed. Yeah, I guess they were kind of treasonous if. 
by treasonous you mean they hate you, (laughs) then yes, they do hate you. And here's all the documents saying how much they hate you. But my tutor doesn't. He's just my tutor. But no, they didn't listen to him. So the king actually sent the queen to beg on her knees Mm. for the life of the tutor. And nope, they beheaded him. They killed him. So now at this point, the king is... um, um, he didn't trust anybody. He doesn't, he doesn't trust the peasants. He doesn't, he did not trust, uh, uh his right. nobles right. and he kind of gives in to their demands. And there's this, there's a, there's a peace for six years. There's sort of this, the, everything kind of settles. And, and please he, tell me that at one point he decides to ride up on a horse and tell everyone to go home. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't try that. Oh, again. he tries. Oh, there's definitely gonna be times where he tries that. Really? Yeah. Really? Nice. Oh yeah. Not so much a horse, but there's gonna be times where he evokes the throne many times. Anyway. Um, so, uh, he, he's in his mid twenties and there's this time of peace. And it's during this time of peace that Chaucer writes the Canterbury tales. Um, but meanwhile, the king has agreed to all the terms, but the king is secretly planning desperate revenge. Mm. He is angry with these five men. Remember Gloucester, Warwick and Arendelle were older. They were, they're actually, they were, you know, in their sixties, they were older men and Bolingbroke and Mowbray were contemporaries of the king. In 1397, the king turns 30 years old. And as a 30-year-old, this seemed to be, this was like sort of marked his final ascension into into his prime. Um, uh, No one could see him as a young king anymore. He still didn't have a male heir, Hmm. um, uh, but no one could see him as, uh, as a boy. He was a king in his own right. On his 30th birthday... Or the year of his th- of his thirtieth year. I don't think it was exactly his birthday. Um, he uh, looked into the legal books and he re- and he looked up the definition of treason, <laughs> the way that it was defined in the legal books, and he realized that he had a claim and a case to try Gloucester, Warwick, Arundel, Bolingbroke, and Mowbray for treason. Wow. Um, so he sends out his armies and he arrests all of them. Um, um, Gloucester is an old man, and when he is on his way to court to be tried for treason, uh, he dies. Mysteriously. I was going to say, that's a little suspicious. Mysteriously? Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that, you know, uh, hundreds of years later, uh, it was revealed through documents that were found in the king's archives that uh, Richard II had him murdered. Oh. He had him uh, smothered to bed, uh, smothered to death in his bed. Wow. So Gloucester is killed, but he is still tried after death and counted and called a traitor. Warwick is... Mm. I feel like that really helps establish a precedent for the other guys. Like if the right. dead guy can't speak against himself yep. and they establish him a traitor, then mm-hmm. the other guys, how much are they going to be able to say against it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Warwick, uh, apparently the scene was very pathetic. Warwick, an old man, was on his knees pleading for his life. Even though they had letters saying things like, yeah, the king kind of sucks hmm. and it would be better if someone else was king. So they actually had papers saying, you know, these men did not like the king. They right. were, for all intents and purposes, treasonous. Right. The Duke of Warwick, it was very pathetic. Apparently, oh, it was uh, it was pleaded for his life I mean, as an old man. They sounded treasonous to me. You take all the king's friends and kill them. That sounds like, yeah, that treason. Sounds like treason. Yes. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, and then Arendelle was also tried. I think Arendelle was banished for life and Warwick was killed or the other way around. I can't remember. Um, but... Um, um, yeah, but uh, uh, the Henry Bolingbroke and Duke of Mow- and Duke of Mowbray were left untried. They were sort of seen as maybe like um, 
accessories to treason, but not actually treasonous himself. It's also the Duke's cousin, or sorry, the King's cousin, uh, Henry Bolingbroke. So they are left unscathed, but definitely like, you better watch yourself, boys. Yeah. Um, and so they escape uh, unscathed. Um, um, yeah. Then there is the famous duel. Okay, this is, the, this is an awesome part. Um, after this went on, so the king basically cons- consolidated his power and he had his revenge and these men that killed his friends have now been killed. And this is basically, he sees himself as untouchable now. He is in charge. His enemies have been put down. It's Richard the second time. This is his kingdom. Henry Bolingbroke and Duke of Mowbray have a falling out. I can never remember what the falling out is. There was some sort of like, I think they accused each other of, of things in a public setting that was besmirching to their honor. And they went from friends to bitter, bitter, bitter enemies. And they were going to go to war over it. They were going to get their armies together and they were going to fight. And the king's like, well, I don't want that. How about you boys fight it out? So they decide to have a duel to the death. So Henry Bolingbroke and the Duke of Morbury um, have a duel to the death. So they set up the tents um, they, they what, you're, what you're saying is they didn't recruit knights and then have a giant game of capture the flag. No, they did not have they the recruit they knights have. and have a giant game. I of still capture feel the flag. like that's a pretty good solution. It's a pretty know? sweet game compared to everybody else. Yeah, no, nope, yeah, they're going to have a duel to the death. Um, so they uh, the scene was set where Henry Bolingbroke came resplendent in his armor. The Duke of Mowbray came resplendent in his armor. The king comes wearing beautiful white linen, and he sits on a cr- on a throne high above everybody else. And at this point, the king has now surrounded himself day and night with bodyguards. He, he, always, he always travels with 100 archers and, like, men-at-arms. So he comes, and his archers are there, and his men-at-arms are there, and him and his queen, and he is sitting on the dais high above, and he makes the two guys come and, like, bow to him and do, like, you know, my lord and king, we're fighting for you. And he's like, go, do your thing. Um, they all get, you know, imagine the, the, the stress that's going on in Bolingbroke and Mowbray. So they get together. They psych themselves up, they get their weapons, they try them all out, they do their, you know, their last kisses to their beloveds or whatever, and they are about to charge each other on their horses with pointed spear tips when the king throws his scepter in the middle of the, uh, of the, of the jousting pit, indicating that he wants the, the, the joust not to happen. Mm. Everyone's like, oh, the king's scepter, and they go and they pick it up, and he leaves and goes into his tent and doesn't say anything. And everyone's sort of sitting around, sitting around for like 20 minutes, being like, what the heck is happening? Messenger comes and says, Bolingbroke, Mowbray, the king wants to see you. Um, Bolingbroke and Mowbray go into the king's tent, and it is resplendent and beautiful, and there's like a monkey in there, and there's like, you know, pit, there's, there's like a, a table full of fruit, and the king is lounging on a day, on, on a, on a day bed. And, Free cornettos? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and he's like, oh... I've decided I don't want you guys to fight to the death. You're both banished. Oh, great. And so they protest because this was their their honors at stake. Yeah. And he's like, oh, screw your honor. You're out of my country. Um, and Bolingbroke is banished for 10 years and Mowbray is banished for life. No reasons are given why the sentences are different. Is and one older than the other? No. Okay. And everybody sort of seems to think that this is just... The king gets to do what he, and you know, the king's like, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. And people are like, yeah, right. but yeah. this is my honor that you're playing with. And he's like, I don't care. You're both banished. 
So then there's the sad scene where Henry Brolingbrook's got to go to his dad, John of Gaunt, and say, I'm, I have to leave. Mm-hmm. I've been banished. Aww. And John of Gaunt um, is so sad that, um, well, he's now he's an old man. So by 1399, um, John of Gaunt dies. Mm. And when the king, so the king has, has basically turned the realm into his own, almost like, People, the, the one chronicler I read said that um, it seemed like the king was at war. It seemed like he, the king acted as if he was at war with his own realm. He always went with bodyguards and archers. Um, what he would like to do after dinner, before evening prayer, he would go and he would have all of his subjects in his throne room and he would just sit on the throne for like four hours looking at everybody. And if he made eye contact with you, you had to bow. And this was the game that he loved. He would just do this for hours. He would just make eye contact with you. And when he looked at you, you would have to bow and like subject that's yourself. Weird. And he'd be like, that's right. Yeah. Um, so he's getting. I had a teacher like that yeah. once. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. She would, she'd be normal. And then she'd go sit on her chair and her eyes would become as large as dinner plates. And she would stare around the room and it freaked us all out. And then I went and asked her, I was like, why do you do that? Why, what's the deal with the eyes? And yeah. she goes, it's to intimidate the students. <laughs> and I was like. Okay. Good on you. All right. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, Good job. I don't know why I need to intimidate the students, but. So John of Gaunt dies and uh, he's not too old and he dies. Oh, there's a room. There's a legend. Actually, this is kind of maybe PG 13. So skip ahead if you have younglings. But there's this old legend that when John of Gaunt was on his deathbed, he showed uh, Richard II um, his like genitals that were all deformed because of venereal disease. And he's like, yeah. Don't do what I did, <laughs> and then wow. wait, John of Gaunt. Did yeah, that? he's like I liked the ladies, and I and um, I got sick because of it. So avoid the life of lechery that. is yeah. what he said as he was dying. So which is kind of funny. Um, anyway, solid advice. Yeah, yeah solid I'm advice. Seriously. So John of Gaunt dies. Henry Bolingbroke has now inherited the largest uh, dukedom in the country. He has inherited Lancaster, but he's banished. So the king says, "Nope, Lancaster's mine." So he goes and takes John of Gaunt's stuff. He takes his house. He takes his, his armies and he takes his land. Henry Bolingbroke is not happy, um, but not surprised. Henry Bolingbroke is in France and the king of France is letting Henry, Bolingbroke, Henry stay there because the king of France hates the king of England. And so the enemy of your enemy is my friend. And so Henry Bolingbroke then kind of gets together a, a mercenary army and he's going to go back and take what's his. Um... Richard II um, then has a big problem in Ireland, and he's got to take his army to Ireland to go put down some rebellions there. But as insurance, he takes Henry Bolingbroke's son with him, and his name was Henry of someplace. I can't remember. He's important, but anyway. So he takes Henry Bolingbroke's son, Henry, it's confusing, right. to Ireland with him, presumably like, Hey, if you do, if Henry Bolingbroke, if you do something while I'm in Ireland, I'm going to kill your son. I bet Bolingbroke's wife hated that. Henry! And yeah. the husband would go, well, yes. yes. And the and kid would, would go, go, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, this other little Henry, Henry Bolingbroke's son, goes to Ireland with King Richard II. Henry Bolingbroke invades England with this army, but he doesn't say he's invading. He says he's just going to get what's his. And he invades with this new great knight, of uh, uh, who's considered the greatest knight of all Christendom, the yen, the young Henry Hotspur. You know, really? lots of Henrys. Hotspur. Hotspur, Ooh. because he had a temper. Oh, oh. Um, so Henry Bolingbroke and Henry Hotspur, this young firebrand, come into England, 
And the story goes that everybody in England welcomed him as a savior. Mm. They said that something like every good, dutiful English housewife came out and asked Henry Bolingbroke if there was anything that she could do for him, like like wash his pants or, you know, like do anything. Can I make you lunch? You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'm not I think here. they were just relieved to not have to go through those weird eyeballing sessions exactly. anymore where they Seriously. stand there and he yeah. looks at you. So Henry Bolingbroke said, I'm not here to take the throne I'm just here to get my ancestral lands back. My father has died, and I'm here to get what's mine. Everyone's like, that makes sense. It is yours. The king shouldn't be taking it. And Richard II's like, the king may do as he pleases. He was a traitor. Um, He comes, um, but uh, everybody rallies to his side, and it is clear that Henry Bolingbroke has the bigger army, and Richard II comes back basically with no army. Hmm. And it's like Richard II can't do anything. And Henry Hotspur says, or sorry, Henry um, Bolingbroke says, no, I'm here to help you govern with my army. Okay. And so they got together and they, and they saw each other at this place called Flint and where they eventually met. And um, Bolingbroke said, you know, I am here, my cousin and my liege at your service. And then the king was like, oh, my dear fair cousin, thank you for returning. But really they hate each other. Um, so he says, I will help you govern I need, uh, in order to um, save the realm, my liege, it would be best for all if you stayed in the Tower of London. So essentially he imprisons Richard II right. in the Tower of London. So now imagine this. Richard II is, um, is 34, and he's, in the, he's literally in the same room that he was as a 14-year-old when he saw London burning. He is in this tower, locked away by his cousin— and his cousin, remind, mind you, has a claim to the throne. He was John of Gaunt's son. John of, a lot of people think John of Gaunt should have been king when Richard III died. And so then here's the maybe the maybe king's son. And he's smart. He's handsome. He's a good fighter. He's not. He doesn't seem to care about all this finery. He's a leader, whereas Richard II was uh, trusted in prestige. Um, and so... Um, there was one, so apparently Richard the Se- Richard, yeah, the second in the Tower of London was writing his memoirs, and there was this. Um, what to do when you're imprisoned in a yeah, tower yeah. other than write your memoirs, right? Seriously. And um, all of the men who were coming to like talk to him as the king were really just spies to make sure he was doing things. And so there was this one chronicler, and his name was Usk. <laughs> And um, Usk wrote this about... Please tell me he would walk in and say, I'd like to ask you some questions. Yeah, I'd like to ask you some questions. <laughs> um, and Usk would come, and he wrote this about the king in the tower at this time. Seeing the troubles of his soul, wrote Usk, and seeing that none of those who had been uh, deputed to wait upon him were in any way bound to him or used to serving him, but were strangers who had been sent there simply to spy on him, I departed, much moved at heart reflecting to myself on the glories of his former state and on the fickle fortunes of the world. So here was the most majestic man in, in England, now reduced to a prisoner in the tower, based as you know, in the prime of his life, basically being like, I hate everybody, everybody, you know, is against me, um, writing his memoirs and sort of frothing and seeming, and everyone's like, ha ha, you can't do anything, like, leave us alone. Meanwhile, they're like, Bolingbroke, Bolingbroke, become king, become king. And for a long time, Bolingbroke refused. And then one day, and then he said that he would be king. And he asked, and he made, the, he made Richard stand before him in court. And he's like, will you abdicate the crown to me? 
And Richard II says, no. <laughs> and Bolingbroke's like, my liege, all of the nobles want it. The people are angry. They are crying for me to be king. I have the army. Abdicate the crown to me. And legend has it that Richard II threw the crown on the ground in front of Bolingbroke, gave this big old pompous speech about being king, about how they were going against God's ordained, and how no good was going to come with to England because of this treachery, and how he was the rightful king, and that this was, you know, pestilence and and you know warfare and disease were going to come on this land because of their uh, because they were going against God ordained, and Henry Bolingbroke was crowned king of England, Henry the Fourth. And Richard II went back into the tower, and there are two accounts of his death. Uh, one that he either starved to death after, in the, for the next four years. He just either he starved himself or was starved to death. Um, when Shakespeare writes uh, Richard II, Shakespeare has a character, um, a character who thinks the king, who thinks Henry IV tells him to kill Richard. Henry IV didn't want to kill Richard, but he mistakenly goes and kills Richard by shooting him with a crossbow. Hmm. Um, that happens in the, in the play. No one really knows, but Richard II dies as the rightful king of England in the tower, and Henry Bolingbroke becomes Henry IV, and that young boy— At this point, the Tower of London is still palace, right? Yeah. It's palace and, jun- and jail and dungeon as well. Well, I mean, there was—so from what I know of the, of the tower, it was primarily palace. That's where the crown jewels are now. It was—there were— but there was were all, some jail cells in there, but, but it was he also, would have been in the kingly quarters, right? Yeah, but he can't leave. Yes. yes. So, so he, I mean, it's a fancy house. Uh, yeah. A it's palace a fan, can be a, a prison, jail. but it can be a yeah. fancy prison. Anyway, so Henry Bolingbroke is now crowned Henry the Fourth, and his son, that boy that was taken to Ireland and almost killed by Richard II as held as hostage, would one day grow up to be Henry V. Hmm. He was Prince Hal. And our next podcast, and it's going to be the last podcast we have on the Plantagenets, and maybe even technically this is the last podcast on the Plantagenets, because we've got this new line. The, the crown has now passed from Richard II to John of Gaunt's line, which is the House of Lancaster is now uh, the kingdom. And uh, so Henry IV is this king that kind of becomes king through usurpation. Um, <clears throat> and so now he is king of England, and, um, and he has a son, Henry V who everyone kind of sees as like a partier and doesn't really uh, do very good things. And then you've also got this kid named Henry Hotspur, who is the bee's knees, as it were. And so Henry IV, um, as a usurping king, now has his own uh, problems in front of him. But that is the sad story of Richard II. Bummer, dude. This little 14-year-old boy that stops his bloodshed through basically appealing to his majesty thinks that he can kind of appeal to his majesty through the rest of his life. And at the end... Nobles who don't really, who have their majesty of their own, uh, don't that's buy the it. Issue, they don't buy it. You're only majestic to people who don't have any of their own. So that's right. So leadership does trump prestige. Mm-hmm. And this is the story. This is the, the leadership of Henry Hotspur. He was someone that men could trust. Uh, pre, uh, trumps the prestige of Richard II, who was somebody that men couldn't trust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is the story of Richard II. All right. This has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. You can email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can find us on Twitter at classicalstuff. That's C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. You can find us online at classicalstuff.net. And I think that is everything. Any things we got wrong? Any? Mm, don't think so. Don't think so. Add? Cool, cool. I dig it. All right. Then for Graham, AJ, and Thomas, we are signing off. Signing Bye. Off. Bye. Bye. Bye.